you know, just employing someone and giving them access to your data and your systems and, and giving them a decent payroll every month is a huge amount of trust. Now, at the same time, you decide to micromanage them on buying a coffee or whatever, a little tool to make them efficient. It, it just doesn't make sense, right? And that's how it feels so weird as an employee to, to be controlled when it comes to this, because you feel like you should have more freedom to operate. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guest is Yepe Rindom, the founder of Smart Company Card Payments Platform and indeed our very generous sponsors that keep this show coming through your ears and into your brain every week. It's Plio. Now, whilst you will have some good basic context on what Plio is, as obviously our core listeners would do, their core proposition, you won't know too much about, you know, how their actual journey went, how they became one of the biggest card payment companies in Europe. Now, they've actually raised over 70 million euros in five years since 2015 to bring them from idea to reality, keeping payments in companies simple, transparent and manageable for all. So, Today, we're going to hear more about this rocket ship journey from their co-founder and CEO, recording from Denmark in, of course, his holiday summer home, like all Scandinavians do if you speak to them in the summer. So welcome to Yepe. I hope you're feeling relaxed and ready. Thank you so much, Dan. Yeah, not quite relaxed. Summer vacation has not hit us yet, but uh, the surroundings are, are just, just right. Thanks for inviting me. Um, now, before we kick things off, we always do a quick fire round, as I'm sure you know. So we want to make sure you're warmed up and glowing, full of ideas. So very quickly, cats or dogs? Dogs. I actually just had a puppy yesterday. So good, good timing for the question. Oh, amazing. Congratulations. You must be exhausted after that birth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cash or cards? Cards, of course. Of course. Apple or Google? Apple. Small businesses or large corporates? Uh, small businesses for the time being. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely hedging your bets there for the future of the company. Exactly. Remote working, remote working culture or office-based culture? We are into both. But if you had to pick, which you do, because, you know, quick fire. Uh, then I have to say remote, which is uh, why I can enjoy my view as I speak with you. Fair enough. And you're stuck on a deserted island for the next five years. So what three things are you bringing? I am bringing my phone, um, a solar charger, and sunglasses i guess nice okay mate brilliant thank you very much um i guess you're going to be very lonely on your island with uh, no family and not much to do but importantly you're ready for the show so an entrepreneur in a small business payment space so assuming that you know that might not have been exactly what you wanted to be when you grew up do you remember what you did want to be were you like a lawyer or a doctor or an astronaut um you know when you were a kid thinking about your future what what did it look like yeah, I, I wanted to be something with math or numbers uh, back then. I was really into that when I was a kid. Um, my dad was an auditor, an accountant. Um, so for a period of time, I wanted to be uh, like him. You, you are literally fulfilling his dream then. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, so that is the interpretation of working as an auditor, I guess, is what we're doing now. But, but the, the auditing itself was, um, was sort of some dreams that I, I lost along the way. Fair enough. Okay, I was going to ask, you know, what are your, what were your parents' professions? So we've got auditor. Any any insights from your your mum and what kind of things she wanted for you? My mum, my mum was a nurse, so a, a little bit of uh, different things. Okay, so when you were growing up, they wanted you to be a caring man with other people's money. Exactly. I think that's a good that's a good way of putting it. Perfect. Okay, what was your early career like? What were you doing before entrepreneurship, and and where were you? 
Yeah, I, so I went into university and um, I think, you know, I just I was just dragged along to what was uh, what was the, the best thing to do when you uh, when you were out of university. I was very competitive back then. And and the good the good scholars, the good students were into management consulting and investment banking. Uh, so that's actually what I did. I went into management consulting at McKinsey. That was my first job. Um, and later on, I actually went to investment banking. So that was like the first six, seven years of my career was working with large enterprises on the advisory side, you could say. Um, and then I moved into working with one of my clients, so also a large enterprise, um, leading their strategy team. And then I would say after, after 10 years of working with large businesses, I, I wanted to do something completely different. Uh, and then for the past 10 years, I've been only in, in tech, um, mostly in fintech, and really just enjoyed being a part of smaller businesses, building it from, uh, from scratch. Okay, fair enough. Where did you meet your co-founder, Nicolo, then? Yeah, so Nico and I, we were colleagues. Um, we met in, um, in another Danish startup called TradeShift, where we both joined as, as one of the early employees when the team was, was just 10, 15 employees. Which was also, I think, what encouraged us really to to go out and build our own business. It was uh, we had a lot of fun there. We we moved the company to San Francisco. Both Nico and I went there to start the office. And Nico and I are, you could say, very complementary in the sense that he is uh, he's an engineer. He he he's a strong architect, and you know I'm on the commercial side. So we were a really good combo for for founding a, a business. Uh, we thought, and that's what happened eventually. And was that your first experience of startups then, Trade Shift? It was kind of the first experience, and then alongside of, of Trade Shift, I, I made a couple of angel investments and just did a few things. And, and when we left Trade Shift, we didn't start Playo until two years after, so I was also involved in a lot of different things there. Um, but I just really had, you know, I really found you could say the combination of passion and brilliant people, as well as a purpose. Whereas, you know, in my earlier career in, in consulting, I, I found really great people, um, but I found less purpose because you were working on behalf of your clients for short periods of time. And you can say when I joined an enterprise, I also found a little bit of purpose, but and I also found some good people. But, you know, the, the, the speed of which you were moving didn't really it didn't really fit with my sentiment and my impatientness um, and I think all of that I have now found in, in startups being able to change things having great people and actually making a difference out there and um, where did the name Plio actually come from it actually comes from um, from Nico's wife uh, she was the one who came up with it um, what Plio means in in Latin is more or more than you would expect which is um, which is one of our product values, you could say, is to deliver something under the surface that brings some magic to the user experience. And um, just you know, knowing how difficult it is to name companies, do you remember? Do you remember the time you spent on it? Was it like sitting around for a week, being really irritated that you hadn't landed on it yet, or was it an insight very quickly over dinner? Yeah. So how how it worked with us was we first had a, a temporary name for a few weeks, um, and. It was Paco Box. So Nico is Italian, so Paco means pay in Italian, and then Box. And then you know we were interviewing the first customers, and they didn't really know how to pronounce it, and it was it was a nightmare. So we had to do a probe session, and then, as you might know or may not know, is like coming up with the name is is not easy because it's it's not just the name; it is like it is the trademark situation, it is the domain situation, it's the what else is called that name and stuff like that. And and we checked the box sort of with with Playo except 
that when you Google play, and it still is the case actually, you'll see a ton of dinosaurs. Because the thing is that, that there was an artificial intelligent dinosaur in the, in the mid-zeros in the US that was super hyped called Pleo. And um, we, the, the company later went belly up, so we were pretty confident that eventually we, we would beat them on Google. But uh, it was really hard. And we had this saying internally that it's really hard to beat a dinosaur, which was the case. But now we rank number one. Yeah, finally. Just five years later, that pesky dinosaur. Um, you're right. I think it's always really interesting. We don't talk about it so much, the the process of naming a company, because uh, people underestimate you can do it right, you can do it wrong, and there's nothing more painful than picking a name and being and being into it and defining values around it and then realizing you can't actually use it for whatever trademark reason, which I, I think is the kind of thing that usually you find experienced entrepreneurs, um, like knowing that that is a problem that they're going to have to overcome. Uh, so I, I'm always curious about that. Okay, take us back to your first insight behind why Plio should actually exist. What was that moment that caught your attention? Yeah, I think it, it sort of um, indirectly happened years before we started Plio when uh, I was a CFO in TradeShift. And you know, when, when you're a CFO of a small company, and I'm not a finance person per se, but I was just doing that, you, at least we were very much just into enabling people to be efficient around their work and enabling them to buy the tooling and everything that they needed. And that's what we did. And the only way we could do it back in the trade trip days was simply like sharing a payment card around the office. And then, you know, people were signing up to different subscriptions and stuff like that. And that worked uh, pretty well for enabling them. But it was the worst thing we could do in terms of administration because it was just completely nightmare for me to track, you know, who has pe- who has purchased what, where is the receipt, are we still using this subscription, the person has left the company, and all those kind of low practical things. So, you know, what Playo ended up solving was indeed a struggle that we felt in trade shift. And even though that we were a technology company and we tried to iterate around different tools to solve for this, Expensify and so forth, there wasn't any tool out there that could combine the enablement of people being able to buy stuff as well as taking out the complexity of your accounting. And that was just a learning back then. I didn't see this, I didn't see the solution back then, but I did see the pain points um so i think that was a you could say some some of the the first learnings and then what nico and i did a a couple of years later was just being very deliberate about starting a company together and we were really structured around it and we started to look into different problem areas and this was one of the problem areas that we looked into and nico had just been consulting for a, a mobile payments product in denmark and he was pretty up to date in terms of combining software with payment technology and that's how some of the you could say the, the magic or the, the solutions behind player was was invented was his technical expertise and then you know my understanding of all the pain points out there i guess you know you just struck uh, struck a chord with me in terms of you know you were very purposeful about starting this 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 company but you weren't really sure what it was and about a year and a half ago i went through exactly the same experience with my business partner um it's complicated when you want to start a company and you could do anything uh you know so in some ways it's it's far more difficult than having a very restricted set of guidelines so you almost have to set it for yourself so curious of what your process was how did you go about that so for any uh, entrepreneurs, whether first time or multiple, right? When you start with a blank scrap of paper and the dream of being an entrepreneur or building something, uh, you've got to put in place some rules. So what were yours? Yeah, 
I think in the beginning, you know, there was, when, when it was just Nico and I, you know, the purpose was just, we wanted to build a company. And the reason why we wanted to build a company was, you know, the journey of it, but it was also to put together a group of people that where we could form, you know, the culture and the principles of working together. But in the beginning, it was just, you know, creating a company. And when you have that purpose, it's, it's all about the product in the beginning. And we were just figuring out what are the tangible pain points out there and how can we bring a solution? We didn't think too much about purpose and all of that until later. Now, the pain points there was very functional, like, you know, how can we save time? How can we take away manual steps and friction and stuff like that? That was our focus in the beginning. Now, what happened one to two years later was that our clients were starting to give us feedback that we were actually solving bigger problems for them than just the functional parts. Suddenly, they were hearing feedback from their employees, the users of Playo, that it was not only about saving time, it was also about enabling the employees, about empowering them to do their work and you know, take away the bureaucracy and take away the, you could say, the, the very top-down controlling of buying stuff. Um, so essentially, passing on trust to the employees through our product. We had built our product in the way that we wanted to use our product. So you could say the values of which we had built our business were passed on to our product. And we had built our business on trust, on you know, enabling everyone, uh, making sure that you find the best and you, 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 you make the best out of them. And that were the values that we had passed on to our product. And suddenly we were starting to get that feedback from the, from the clients that we were also a culture enabler. And that's, that was actually the tipping point where we were like, okay, then maybe we're on a bigger purpose than just solving functional stuff. We're on a purpose of actually changing the workplace. And that's very much the purpose we have in Playo today is about really making every employee feel valued through our product and making them feel valued by being in control, being empowered to do the stuff they want, taking away the friction of manual stuff. That's, that's the purpose we have while it's not compromising that the company or the CFO also needs to be in control, needs to have the transparency and the analytics to feel confident that, you know, trust is assigned to the employees, right? So that's how we thought about purpose and it has developed over time, I have to say. Yeah, it's really interesting, I guess, building the whole platform around trust, right? Because obviously you're dealing with people's financial data, financial information, companies have to trust you. It's a, obviously a credit card at the end of the day, one way or another. Um, as in they're putting in a lot of trust of how you transparently manage their finances. But also, as the employee, I think you identify something really important, which is um, past the age of 10. I mean, even 10-year-olds don't want their parents to give them pocket money, right? It's like no one wants to feel like they're being controlled in that kind of way. People just feel like they deserve a, a basic level of trust. Um, and maturity. It's really interesting how complicated that can actually be, even for adults in their 40s or 50s going to get small little tickets signed off by another adult. Yeah, exactly right. And I think there's been this, um, you could say, misbalance between the trust of you and your worker versus, for instance, you know, allowing them to spend company money, like, you know, just employing someone and giving them access to your data and your systems and, and giving them a decent payroll every month is a huge amount of trust. Now, at the same time, you decide to micromanage them on buying a coffee or whatever, a little tool to make them efficient. It, it just doesn't make sense, right? 
And that's how it feels so weird as an employee to, to be controlled when it comes to this, because you feel like you should have more freedom to operate. And those are some of the, the problems that we solve. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You've got a nice big vision, a unique insight. What was your first year like? So take us behind the scenes. Did you just get going? Did you raise money? Uh, So from 2015 onwards, what was the story? Yeah, I mean, Nico and I, we started sharing an office and uh, we looked into one problem space, which was around payroll and stuff around that. And we scrapped that project after six weeks. Um, and then we zoomed in on on Playo and we started to to write up a vision and and I would actually say that the vision that we lined up the first week for Playo is is actually what we're executing on today and it hasn't been modified a whole lot so that we got that we got that nailed really early on but what we also realized was if we had to execute on this vision we were entering a problem space which was obviously software and software technology but it was also payment technology and it was uh, regulatory compliance and stuff like that. And it was very, it was very, it felt very ambitious when you were two people to actually have to build almost three businesses to be successful. So fairly early on, we realized that this would this would take some money, and we had to to go and raise some cash before having an alpha or a beta in the market because just being able to assign cards and have payments, you know, was a big thing, and and we needed money for that. So we were we were sort of executing under the the complexity that we needed money before we could build build product. 
Um, and we went out and we raised a bit of money, half, half a million euro or a million euros on a PowerPoint. And that sort of enabled us to hire the first team. First person we hired was, was, was Nico's wife. Um, and she did a ton of extremely valuable user research for us, um, just trying to validate the vision and the ideas and, and structure that and feed it back to Nico and I. Um, and then, you know, we started on hiring engineering and, and really just building the alpha, alpha part of the product, which took us a good amount of time. Again, because of the payment complexity, it took us about a year or a little bit more before we, you know, we had a card and we can actually purchase something and, and start getting some, some real validation on the ideas. As a self-identifying impatient man, um, how does that first year, like reflecting on it, what was it like for you? Were, you? were you fully bought in and aware of what that process would be like in advance or were you kind of taken aback by how long it actually took and therefore frustrated a lot of the time? I think we could see it coming. Uh, that was also right why we raised a bit of cash. We knew that this would take some time. But I, I have to say that, you know, there were moments when I spent late evenings drafting compliance policies on business continuity and all that kind of stuff before we even had a product in the market where I was like, what am I spending my time on here? We don't have a single customer, yet I'm still drafting all these super complex policies as if I was a bank already. But that was just stuff that we needed to deal with before we could, you know, check the box and get our licenses running and then eventually get the first customer. So there was a bit of frustration here and there, but I would say all in all, we were just tremendously excited because we were still speaking with customers, even though that we didn't have a product, we were doing marketing, we were accumulating a wait list. So we were getting validation on, on our vision and we were getting so much strong feedback out there. And there were like a few hundred customers ready to onboard even though that we weren't live. So we, we, did, we did feel that there was progression also on the commercial side, uh, despite that we didn't have a product in the market. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting like for me hearing this because I, uh, I was a customer in my last business of you guys and I, don't, I didn't actually realize I must have been so very early in it because it was three or four years ago. So, and I'm assuming the UK was an early market for you then. It was our second market. So we, um, we ran our beta in Denmark in second half of 16. And then we launched in Denmark July, uh, January 17. And then in the UK six months later. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, always good for me to know that I'm an early adopter, because you know, my, my, yeah, my, ego, my ego needs to get that kind of validation, right? We spend as much time <laughs> with startups. It's always good to know uh, you, you practice what you preach. Thanks for supporting us, Dan. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so and, and like, you know, again, you, simple product, simple proposition made our life easier, right? We had 45 people, it was a pain in the ass, uh, just even getting people to order lunch. So I do literally remember how helpful it is just sort of a very simple, annoying problem to solve. Just going back to, to you and Nicola, then how do you guys decide to split your workload? So who is responsible for what? And how's that developed over time? Yeah, I mean, it felt completely natural in the beginning, to be honest, because our our profiles were so different that, you know, of course, Nico would run engineering, of course, he would run the architecture and all of that. And of course, I would do, you know, the business side of things. Um, I think where we, we had a bit of a gap in the middle, we were so different that we actually didn't overlap at all. Quite on the contrary, we had a gap in the middle, because I had never done... I had never done the, the product as such. I'd never done the user experience of products. And Nico had executed on that as an engineer, but he had also never done it, right? So 
in the beginning, I would say our weak point was um, the experience and the design of the product. You know, we had a really strong vision. I knew exactly which problems I wanted to solve. I had rough ideas on how, how I wanted to solve it. And Nico could execute on the engineering, but like turning that into an experience was a little bit of a weak point for us in the beginning. And that was the, that was a crack that we had to, to bridge for the first couple of years until we have a, had a bigger, bigger organization. Fair enough. Um, have you guys ever had any big arguments or big disagreements? And if so, I mean, if not, crazy, but if so, how did you go about dealing with them? Yeah, I mean, I think that the advantage of having worked together previously is you you pretty much know each other and you know what you go into. And and there was a reason why I wanted to build a company with Nico is because we had a good relationship. And we, of course, we've had arguments, but we've always... It hasn't felt like arguments in that sense. It hasn't been like a conflict. And that's why I, you know, I have a little bit of a hard time coming up with examples because we've had many arguments, but we've never had conflicts, um, I would say. Right. So more about different, different approaches to the same problem, but you have the same belief that the problem needs to be solved. Exactly. Got it. Okay. I mean, you seem like a very leveled person. So I was kind of wondering, you know, do you, do you have like a fiery side, like in your leadership stance? What, what's been some of the... Uh, the feedback you've had personally on on your leadership, what would you say are the pros and cons of your leadership style? So when you get feedback, what are the things that you nail and what are the things that people say you could do better? I can tell you very precisely because uh, we are focusing a lot on this these days. We actually are going through a, a sort of a leadership development process as, as a leadership team. And we had recently just done a survey on, you know, where can we improve as a leadership team? And so I know exactly where we can improve, improve and where I can improve. But to, to boil things down, I think what I have found the hardest and what we as a company have found really to be really hard is figuring out how to operate your organization uh, when you very quickly transition from a company of 30, 50 people to now more than 200. And... In the beginning, when we were 20, 30, 50 people, you can, you can achieve a lot with, I would say, a culture-driven company where people are, you hire the right people and they are empowered to take responsibility and to action stuff autonomously. And if you lead by enabling people to do that, you, you can achieve a lot. That can also be tremendously helpful when you're 200, but no longer is it enough. And I think that's that's where we've struggled in the past times is that we've accelerated extremely fast from 50 to 200, but we have not had enough time or we hadn't been good enough at com complementing the, the strong cultural part with structure and direction um, because no longer can the cultural element stand on its own. And I think that has been a, a struggle for us that on one side, you want to enable people to find their own direction and really, you know, pull in the right direction. Because I am a big believer that the people that has the pulse of whatever they're doing and they are the, that are the specialists and know stuff in depth should also be the one that, that, that sets the direction because there's no way I can do it. And I've seen too many companies having a, what I call a disconnect between management and reality. And I, I don't want that to happen. Yet, you cannot just expect that that is done everywhere. And when you grow as fast as we do, um, people, not everyone will, lack, will have the context to find their own direction. And if you don't find a way to, of supporting them and actually setting the direction, you end up wasting a lot of time. 
and causing a lot of noise in the organization. And that's why you know, structure and direction is still important, even if you are a believer that you know, those that can find their own way should just you know, go do it. And that's a balance that I think you know, we've, we need to focus more on in Playo to, to find and, and something we're focusing a lot on these days. And what about on a personal level? Because I mean, a lot of that, a lot of that, the way that I read a lot of the answers there is 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 correct, right? It was like actually, you know, buck stops and me. I'm the CEO and founder, so all of these feedback points are things that I need to personally work on. But then, on a more personal level, what's been the most surprising bit of feedback that you've had? Because obviously, it's quite different when you're uh, in a giant structure in a bank and there's loads of ancient old processes around to give you feedback constantly by your manager suddenly you're the manager, you're the boss, you're where the buck stops and everything kind of changes and your understanding of how to personally grow and develop really changes. So, you know, how have you, how have you structured being able to learn and develop? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, the answer sits very close to the discussion we had before um, because ultimately it is my responsibility that, that this happens. And I've been the person that have been such a big believer in an empowering way of leading a business. And now, uh, I think we still very much believe in that, but now it has turned into our weak point. And, and that is my responsibility, right? And I can give you a couple of examples that, for instance, having, having product values that everyone should be autonomous and you know, be able to go do and, and all that kind of stuff is actually now what people in Playo do not want because we have too much of that. Instead, they want more structure and guidance from above. And I have expressed, I have a little bit of anxiety about management teams because I've just seen, first of all, what I talked about, the management team disconnect. And I've also seen that, you know, just defaulting and thinking you should make decisions in the management team is not the right way to go about it. And it can be so demotivating not to be a part of the management team. So I've always been like, let's not have a management team. Let's just have, you know, circles of people that runs parts of the business, uh, but they are open circles, you know, anyone can join it. That's what I believed in. But now I also realize that, you know, too much time is spent before we take decisions because no one knows who's going to take the decisions. And now I need to complement this with more structure, potentially having a management team and more clear alignment of who has decision power and where to go for for um, for being challenged and where to go for 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 making decisions and that's that you know that relies on me also how do you personally deal with uh you know these constantly changing requirements in terms of uh management principles so do you feel like it takes quite a big toll on your mental health on your mental performance during the days um, do you ever have to take time out and just do loads of reading uh, before you give any answers? Like, how have you approached these, like this very fast cycle of changing requirements from what's needed of you? Yeah, I, I think this is something that is really top of my mind and something I spend most of my time and energy on is the, the people. In the beginning, you know, our biggest people challenge was to get people. It, that's no longer the case. T today, it's about getting people to work together in the most efficient format. That is what I spend almost all of my time on. So yes, this is um, important for me. Um, it's important for me because it's, it's what will drive the business forward, but it's also important for me because I care a lot about our people. 
And every time that I hear you know stuff that is not working uh, well enough, etc., I have a tendency to take it a little bit personally because I care so much about it, right? So I think you know the way I I think about our organization is is a little bit like I think about our product. That you know there's your your organization fit, like your your management to organization fit, and that fit constantly needs to be nurtured and changed. And the way we communicate, the way we organize, the way we make decisions, the way we come together as a company, it needs to change all the time. Because what worked a year ago no longer works. So you need to nurture it as, as a product and you need to invest into it. And that's the mindset we try to have. What about on a on a personal level? So, you know, you mentioned you can take you mentioned a couple of things. You, you mentioned that you can take the feedback quite personally because you care a lot. And you also mentioned that, you know, a lot of these changing, you know, requirements will sometimes cause, you know, understandably anxiety about how to make the right decisions, etc. Obviously, building a company in five years, raising over 75 million euros and consistently performing and growing, uh, that can take quite a big toll on people's mental health as well as physical health, right? Lots of stuff can get sacrificed. So the question is, how have you handled and, and managed your, your journey with your mental health as a leader during that time? And then also uh, looking at the fact that, you know, seeing as we've got you on, on video, you look like the very typical Scandinavian in perfect health. So how have you managed your routines, daily habits, physical health, and made sure that you've got the right balance in your life to accomplish what you need to, to stay fit and healthy in the role? Yeah, if we, if we take the professional side first, I think what, what is difficult as a founder and what I have found difficult is that often when there are problems and concerns and challenges in your organization, people will come to you, but you not always have a place to go yourself. And I think that you need that as a founder. You, you need to be the oak tree of the organization that everyone can lean against, but you also need a place to go and offload yourself. And that has been very important for me. And the places that I, I go is, is to my co-founder, Nico. And even though that professionally we don't overlap, then we, we share you know, caring about organization and then we can discuss a lot of, of things around organization. But I also go uh, to my wife, because I think you, you, you need a place to go that is consistent and where you can go frequently and people that understand the context. And my, my wife is, is an ex-management consultant and she's done a lot of organizational stuff. So she's a good place for me to go and offload and, and get her perspective. And I, I, it's really, really important for me that I've been able to do that. And then recently, which, which I think will be important for us, is to have a leadership coach where I can offload, but also where other people can offload. And therefore, there's a person who, who senses stuff around the leadership team or more broadly in Playo that can give me a little bit of feedback and be my, my ears a bit as well. And I think those three places for me are, you know, the, the top places where my professional mental health can, can stay in balance. Then there is more like, you know, physically and stuff like that, which also I think is important for the mental health. And here, you know, I've, I've just faced, of course, less time than, than ever. So I've had to figure out a format for, for staying a little bit in shape. I used to do a lot of sports when I was younger and I no longer have the time for that. But what I do prioritize is I, I get up one hour earlier than the rest of the family every morning. And I do that consistently Monday to Friday. And I have a little bit of time for myself. 
and I do every morning, Monday to Friday, a 20 minute workout. And I set the clock and I just do 20 minutes. And no matter if I wanna do it or not, I do it. But I, I sort of, sometimes it's a hard workout, sometimes a little yoga, but I do something every morning. And it, it has been this feeling of brushing your teeth for me that you have some degree of physical hygiene that I haven't compromised with. And it's not the best, but I get it done. I think that's great. And I think that's really important. You know, there's the, um, the commitment to yourself, no matter what you're feeling like, assuming this is Monday to Friday, right? Uh, is, is weekends a little bit more take it, take it as it goes? Weekends are off mostly. Sometimes I have a run or whatever, if I have the time, but I don't set expectations on myself on doing anything in the weekend. A lot of success for business leaders is based on, um, basically well-taken decisions, uh, you know, compound enough of them. You've got a successful company compound enough of them and you've got a bad one. What, what would you say is the worst decision or mistake you've made so far as a CEO? And what did you learn from it to, you know, alter the course? There's the very sort of low practical, tangible decision that I think we have, we've picked up a little bit of a, of a, of a bill in, in play uh, lately. And that is, um, you know, really investing into uh, to business intelligence and insights and data and stuff like that. And we are really making big investments here. And I think had we invested into some of this earlier, um, we would have been in a better shape now. But it's something that we're very much big believers on. And now we are really investing into that. That is the tangible, looking in, in hindsight, that is a tangible piece where I wanted to have, to have invested into data engineering earlier in the journey. But from a leadership perspective, I think it is around the topic that we've discussed, being more aware of the tr transition between a, you could say, cultural-driven company and a more mature, top-led company that I think somehow needs to be, uh, that transition needs to happen. You can interpret top-led in different ways and you can have different values around that, but it needs to be more top-led going forward than it has to be in the early days. And doing this journey over again sometime in the future is something that I would be more mindful of. You know, I went to Saster a couple of years ago and I was extremely inspired about from this founder who um successful technology company. And he, he talked a lot about, you know, le leading his company from, from a pure culture. And I was so excited about it because it, I felt that, you know, it was so much how I was thinking about this. And I managed to get a, a call with him and my ambition was to have him as my mentor. And it was like a year later, and, and it, the conversation disappointed me so much because he, he, he basically said to me, yeah, that didn't last. It just didn't last for us. Those were the days, right? And I was so disappointed. I was like, you know, why? And I must say now that I understand it. You, you cannot keep leading your company on culture. It can be so important forever, but you need something on top of that. And that I have no real, now realized. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I guess, you know, the, it's a bit like never meet your heroes, right? You have this idea of, uh, of, of the golden golden bullet that you hope someone's going to help coach you through, but alas, doesn't necessarily exist. 
what was uh, what would you say is the lowest lowest point of your career so far? I mean, assuming that might not be at Plio, but I mean, obviously interesting if it is. And how would you say you you handled that? I mean, were there moments where you definitely didn't think you were going to make it or you lost key employees that you used to think like the entire organization was built upon? Uh, you know, these these are examples from previous guests, obviously. So not not projecting yours, but what was yours? Yeah, I mean, the lowest point in Plio, I think, was was fairly recently around around COVID, right? Where I think for the first time we 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 had to stop and and just rethink a lot of things. Uh, we've we've been, uh, I would say, fairly fairly school example of how to build a company. We didn't ha- we hadn't had tough times until then, and then suddenly overnight we saw the world changing. We obviously were very exposed to small businesses, and uh, as a business we. We of course also run on the transaction activity, and suddenly, you know, businesses stopped operating. So we had to, to put together a plan really fast. And even though that we were well capitalized, and we are very well capitalized, um, we had to make some hard decisions, and it was just very hard. It was it was it was just very hard for me to to take that decision and communicate it to the organization, and harder than I thought. It actually took me by surprise. And we we said goodbye to some colleagues, not many, around 6%. So it, I think it wasn't like very substantial compared to other cases. But just the fact that I felt that we had to break a promise because we, we tried to live up to a promise that, of course, people will leave our company, but no one should leave surprised. And, you know, occasionally some people would leave surprised, but then we would feel that we had done our part at least. But here, for the first time, I felt that we broke that promise. I think that some people left very surprised. How did you deal with that out of interest? We tried just to communicate extremely openly about it and take responsibility and really take people through the journey of how did we, what did we do here? Why did we take this decision? Why was this important? And also, we just realized that this was a broken promise. And I think that was the best way we could do it, but still, it uh, it was tough. It was tough on me, but it was also, I think, a little bit tough on the organization. We 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 also took the decision very fast. Um, we took the decision mid March or like a week after, and there was a lot of other companies that you you could say that the news around companies taking decisions it was not out there. So we we felt a little bit like a first move. I think had we done it a month later where you know tons of companies had been out there, it would have been a little bit easier for the organization to realize that of course we had to do the same. But at that moment where when I communicated, people were a little bit surprised. And that didn't make it easier. And do you remember in the period straight afterwards, like how did you was your inbox sort of flooded? Were you you know, what was like the communication protocol? And I guess the reason I'm asking this is is so interesting. I think for listeners, you know, who are entrepreneurs, you know. A lot of us, myself included, have been in a situation when you need to let a team go or you need to let a group of people go. That feels hard, intense and difficult to manage. But in a physical space, it feels a lot more human because you get to look eye to eye and and take on board the responsibility that's required, etc. And obviously, that's taken away from you in a remote working culture. So what, like, how did you find that experience just on that basis? It was it, it didn't make it easier. Um, I think it worked fairly well um, in terms of the planned communication. You know, I, I was able to communicate to the entire organization and have eye contact and stuff like that. But then, you know, afterwards, 
where all the vending and the you know the small chit chats and the teams that needs to come together and like think forward that part was tough i think it was also tough for me to sense like the shape of the organization because i i didn't have my ears of like listening what goes on in the office and the, are people quiet you know what chats i i, I couldn't sense that right so what i did was i I, st I started to have um, tons of one-on-ones, random one-on-ones, just for me to get the vibe. And I, um, so I did, I did around 10 a day, 10, 10 minutes each. So I, I prioritized an hour and a half every day to have 10 chats. Um, and then I went on a walk and I just had, you know, 10 people just to get the pulse, what's going on, how are you feeling about this? And I did that for, for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, I started to get a little bit of a pulse of what was going on. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, it's just really interesting to hear the different insights and how people handle that. How do you think you as a company in general have adapted to working remotely during COVID? Pretty well. I mean, I think for any technology company, it's not such a big deal, right? I think in 24 hours, we had completely, you know, flipped around the company and everything worked remotely. Um, so I think after that, it was more like, are people as motivated working remotely? Yeah, and what, what do you think? And, and what are you thinking about going back to the office? Like, what, like given the choice, what's your current thinking? And, you know, again, interesting to know how you're approaching it. Yeah, so we've been uh, we've been back for a while. I mean, the office, Copenhagen office has been back for a month. Um, Sweden and Germany has been back for, for a few weeks. And the only office which is still uh, struggling a bit is, is the London office. I feel that most people have been fairly efficient from home and... Uh, some have been even more efficient, but there is this intangible piece that I think a lot of us have missed. And for me personally, I also felt very efficient, but I just felt a whole lot energized being amongst my colleagues. I was like, after the first few days back in the office, I was like, Jesus, I missed this. And I wasn't even aware that I missed it, but like, oh my God, it feels so good to be back. And, you know, I'm so motivated, right? And it was just wasn't the same for me to be from home. But, and I think a lot of people felt that. And then there are also some that are like, you know, I don't need to go to the office. And that's completely fine as well. Yeah. Okay. So you've had like a sort of a, a adapting, uh, adapting rule and basically how people can approach work in, in, in this current period. Yeah. Got it. Okay. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Just so I drop that really easy question on you out of nowhere. That's a good one, right? I think, I think for me and I think for a lot of people, it's about, you know, what makes you happy in life is really finding the right shelf, right? And I feel that a lot of people settle too, too early and become like fairly unhappy in their work life. And I think it's one of the biggest problems we have. I mean, Gallup does this survey every year about the sort of the shape of the workforce. And what they conclude is that 80% of the workforce globally is disengaged or actively disengaged. Like that's eight out of 10 people that actually don't like coming to work or actively work against the workplace, which is like so sad, right? So I think the, the best piece of advice is like my, my upbringing, which has been like, do not settle and keep looking if you're not like happy, right? You need to go for what makes you happy. And, and I think that took me, it took me a while. It's not that I was very unhappy with like being in consulting and so forth, but I just, I couldn't see myself settling. And I have seen people settling. I've seen a lot of people settling. And 
many are not happy. And I think that's tremendously sad. And I think, you know, that, that is the best gift I have given myself is not settling before I was happy. And uh, I feel that that's, that's something I, I, I'd want to see more people doing. I can't think of a better place to stop the interview than some, you know, very inspiring words like that. So firstly, thank you so much for your time, sharing your, sharing your story and your insights. I guess as a, a last final word, what can we expect from Plio over the next couple of years for you, a man that doesn't like patience or settling? You can actually, you can expect a lot more growth. We will um, continue to move down our vision of, of uh, making more employees feel valued out there through our products, more countries, more kind of businesses, um, more awareness of what we're doing in Plio. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Epe. Thanks, Dan. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. next week on secret leaders we allow teams the autonomy to make their own decisions they actually can take some pride in the craftsmanship and creativity of their work if you study any of the psychological inquiries into what actually makes people happy at work well it is things like autonomy and mastery and independence so optimize your process for letting those things flourish without you being the goddamn nag all the time Whoa, what did you do what's the status of this we hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Max Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.